Listeners everywhere, welcome to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan, the weekly fix for your screen addiction and a trusted source for discussion of all things film and television. Please keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, Joel and Ryan are not acting as journalists, but rather fellow moving picture enthusiasts. All of their opinions should be taken as such. Also, please be warned that while Joel and Ryan may seem like petulant children, they are, in fact, adults who may occasionally use adult language. While they promise to keep out all the worst words, it's a good bet you will still understand what they were saying. And now, with no further ado, here's Joel and Ryan. Hello, 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 and welcome. Welcome to the movie show with Joel and Ryan. And and everybody listening, there is one clue that you overlooked that a wash evoom is movie show spelled backwards. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a little teaser. Um, welcome to the movie show with Joel and Ryan. I am Joel. And I'm Ryan. And we got a fun show. We got a kind of a hodgepodge uh, show for you today. A weird deep dive. A deep dive that I don't think anyone saw coming. But you should have, because you know what? It's a darn fine movie. Uh, we are going to be talking about. Uh, I mean, it's fun, and, and you know, I I saw someone uh, review. We're 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 going to be talking about young Sherlock Holmes later, and um, I saw someone. Uh, I think it was on IMDb or something like that, and they they said like, you know. Uh, as much as this movie didn't do well when it first came out, you know, part of what, you know, uh, should be taken into consideration on how good a movie is, is, is does it hold up after years and years, you know, after years and years, and this movie is over 30 years old. And uh, yeah, yeah, gonna, you know, a little uh, spoiler alert or a little preview. Um, it holds up. It holds up. It's fun. Um, but we will get there. We will get there. Um so, uh, yeah, so we're into December. Uh, we're coming to the end of it here. Only uh, this is the penultimate show of this season. And uh, yeah, and we, um, yeah, so we got a lot to cover. But first, let's get into, hey, Ryan. What? Hey, Ryan. What? What you watching? What you watching what? lately? Uh, this I might make this, I might make this a segment. This might be a segment in next season where I just go, me, hey, me Ryan. Need it some music or something's going to play here. there there might be there might be uh yeah some four minute intro that i create that just says uh back in the old watching? days we did this before every show what are you watching I know. what are you doing what are you up to and and then we're like and, and then, then when so our many shows of our got texts. started bumping up against two hours and 15 minutes we're like maybe we don't need to do that every week yeah. the other reason you know the other reason we don't need to do it is that this is the fourth year of the show and i watch the same movies every year like at the around the same time so yep so every once in a while a something new sneaks in there <laughs> yeah i won't repeat myself as much this is a movie we mm-hmm. talked about in a sort of little discussion like this before um it's extraordinarily in in a year uh australian sort of mainstream filmmaker philip noyce made two movies in the same year one was uh the rabbit proof fence about the stolen generation in australia it's an amazing movie we're going to talk about that more in a second the other is one of my favorite remakes of all time one of my favorite novel adaptations of all time the quiet american mm, yes um rabbit proof fence has an incredible you know uh you know, gold selling soundtrack by Peter Gabriel of all people. 
Um, it's because it's a very modest film, and it has this, it you know, it has this guy who he obviously did Last Temptation of Christ, most famously, and some other things throughout the years. Birdie, but you know, Gabriel only he's only done movie scores four times or five times or something, so it's it's special when he does it. Um, and the movie, the score for Quiet America was done by Craig Armstrong at the height of his powers. Is all it's equally very impressive. Um, mm -hmm. so something about those two movies that I love and I always watch them, but today we'll concentrate a little bit cause I tend to get uh, pretty gushy about quiet American, but that's, that really is featured in our shows and why we love it so much. Um, yeah, yeah. and if we ever do, a um, Brandon, what's his face episode, <laughs> Uh, Brendan Fraser, yeah, yeah. If we ever do a bet, it and might we, end up on a Michael Caine list, or it might not. But it's yeah, we, we cover to be yeah. high on a on a Brandon Fraser list because he's yeah. If we ever talk about the Brendan Fraser sons, he's no joke, and he's really really special in that film. And that was before oh, that, movie, yeah. that was before he went away. That was you know it, that was a you know he's really really good in it. Um, mm -hmm. But Rabbit Proof Fence is the story of this you know, this new law that was passed. I can't remember the name of the law, but it, it's even back in the thirties or whatever, the laws always had these very friendly name, the family act, you know, and the, this or that. And they were always these horrific, awful things. And, um, it, what it basically did was it gave this sort of czar of the government agency and the film played really brilliantly by Kenneth Branagh, really understated performance by him and uh who's given the authority to just do whatever he wants with the with the with Australia's indigenous population there were these they were called half caste children there were these white australian workers who would go out into the country to do this project or that we experienced a little of this in a slightly more modern sense and we talked about red dog a few shows back but all you know this working class of people who traveled around in this very wild place and did these public works projects and things or corporate projects and they would inevitably knock up lots of like native native population and the further you go back in time the more of this is a phenomena and so you get these half white half um aboriginal children and the government decided that the at least the half white part of them they were responsible for so they abducted them, essentially. And they did this till 1970. They did it for 50 years. Uh, Multi-generations of kids that the government just said, you, they brought them, you know, we there's this history of this with our own Aboriginal uh, population in America, the re-education camps and stuff. That's exactly what this was. And, and the most a half-caste, sorry to keep repeating that rather offensive phrase, but it... I think it. I think it has power when you say it. That the the best a half caste kid, even a re-educated one, could hope to achieve was servitude. Essentially, they became the servant class classes, really, for rich white Australians for generations. And they were they were never reunited with their parents. They were taken from places without addresses. You know, without with just really no e easy way, the film makes a real case out of it, showing you how difficult it is. You know, even if you have gumption beyond measurement, to find your way back, it it so they make it impossible. Mm -hmm. Australia itself makes it impossible, really. 
Um, the country at the time, and still to some degree, is vivisected by this cross, rather T-shaped, rabbit-proof fence. Transverses almost, you know, huge swaths of the continent. It was at the time, and, and maybe still be, the, the largest man-made fence in the world. And the kids lived near it, and when they escaped from their re-education camp, uh, they bump into it and they see it as their map homeward. Although mm -hmm. they don't quite realize that there's one that runs north and south and there's a big T, and they don't really know which direction they're going. They know where the sun's rising and setting, but... Uh, you know, it, it's tricky for them <laughs> to find their way home, these girls. And there's a great rabbit-proof fence without going into every lick and detail. It's just a fantastic... It's just a fantastic piece of visual storytelling, and and it, it has... It, 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 for a movie that focuses on these girls, the youngest of which is seven years old... Um. There's three of them that are abducted and, and consequently escape. They escape just by leaving one day. It's not expected that they're going to even try and do that. Or right. if they or right. if they do, you know, you'll find them down the road or whatever and just bring them back. These girls went a long way. And they were. there was an Aboriginal tracker played by the great... Uh, do you have his name up? Sorry, I was Paul, looking at... Paul, uh, I think, is, is, is his first name. He was in... Um, Paul starts with a G, Galilapal or something. I'm saying it wrong, so sorry about that. But it, it's hard uh, to say. No, it you're da it's David. David Gupalil. 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 Yeah, he actually has a very big, long, kind of five-part uh, um, Aboriginal name. Which, if we were really clever, we'd have queued that up in advance. But, it, but he. Uh, David died recently, so he, he, you know, he was in. Yeah, he did very he was, recently. Yeah, just a few week, couple of weeks ago, I think he was in on the twenty ninth. Yeah, yeah, he was basically in all these fantastic. Uh, you know, he was in Australia and he's in uh, Quigley Down Under, I think, briefly. But I, I think he's most remembered in Australia for being the young boy in Walkabout, nineteen seventy one. Which, as far mm -hmm. as I'm aware, and Australians, maybe we could get. Uh, Pritchard back on the show and he could he could school us on this I'm sure but uh the, the most significant film that I am aware of that featured uh Australian aboriginals was Walkabout and he's sort of the featured character in that and he in this film it's funny he plays a tracker working for the government because the government stooges the main one played by a Jason uh, pretty famous actor now wasn't at the time Jason Jason Clark yeah Jason Clark um, he plays this sheriff, a Nottingham type character or whatever. Uh, you know, he's he can sit there with a gun and he's the one who abducts these kids when he knows where to find them, but he can't track kids across the outback. So they need an Aboriginal to do that for them. And it's it's interesting. That that whole dynamic is very, very interesting. Obviously, mm. Branna's, uh, you know, well-meaning, bureaucratic uh dictatorship is very interesting to watch but the film lives and breathes with these three little girls and that's where it has to function and they can't cut that part short and they can't make that feel like it's only a third of the movie or you or you'd be missing what the thing is the heart of the thing and they don't and it's it's extremely impressive very raw performances but but very emotionally 
in the moment in all the ways that matter most. And there's a documentary about that film. It's only about 45 minutes long. It was made for Australian TV. It was actually, it feels like an amazing making of because it's narrated by Kenneth Branagh and that obviously brings this sort of heft to it. But it's really mm-hmm. just a local news crew that came out to shoot the casting process of this. And while they were, you know, hundreds of Aboriginal girls being cast in a Hollywood movie. Like it was big news locally. So they came out to shoot that. And then they kind of hung in there for the training and the pre-production, the rehearsals obviously for this were huge because getting these girls ready for these moments and teaching them how to perform in front of a camera and teaching them how to get to some emotionally dark places without completely losing themselves. Like all of that is stuff that it takes even the most refined actors, some time to sort out in their lives. Some of them never even completely do it. Um, so so these completely inexperienced, never been on a TV show before girls had to be trained all, all this. And mm-hmm. Noyce, as they say in the doc, no, well, Phillip's a, a white fella. <laughs> which he totally <laughs> is. Yeah. But he was wise enough to say, well, here's what we have to do. And he asked the Aboriginal community, the tribal leaders and all the people that he knew, any actors that he knew, how do we do this right? How do we do this the right way? You have to help me because I don't, Mm -hmm. I know where we need to get, but I, you know, I don't, I'm not sure about all that. And they gave him a lot of credit for that. This white fella, you know, who was concerned about that every step of the way, but it's, he brought in an acting coach who was a, a very famous Australian actor called Rachel Mazza. She is amazing in this documentary, the way she works with these girls. She's got a very small, you know, acting coach miscellaneous credit in the film. But I was telling Joel before the show started, she's really the co-director of the film. She's with these girls mm-hmm. all the time. She's keeping them focused on the job at hand when during the long waits and between setups and other things. And she's making sure that they're ready to nail it when it happens, there's the, there's the abduction scene, which they shot very near the end of shooting, is incredible. And it, somehow more incredible is watching the sh- shooting of it, which just shows you mm. what a powerful thing it is. The scene in the movie is fantastic um, because there's all these weird and unexpected and natural things happen with these girls. One of them just freezes on... Th- which is a legit reaction to what is going on. I don't know if she's yeah. directed to do that or what, but it's very, very powerful. You know, and Jason Clark is has to just be absolutely cruel in the scene, which I don't know how many times they shot it. Not many, I think. Because I, when we see the making of, which is all kind of shown in one go, everything that you see in that scene in the movie is takes place in this one take. So I don't yeah. think they put these girls through this very often. He's like saying, if you, you know, if you, if you move an inch, you know, I'm going to put your mother in jail or whatever. Uh, and the the lead girl in it, she's 13 years old, I think. She's like, he's trying to get her in this Model T car that they're going to drive off to this camp in, and she's kicking the door and she's putting her feet on, just struggling for her life. It's an extremely powerful thing to see. They all sort of break down completely. The women playing the mothers who before the scene are kind of smoking cigarettes and talking about the craft of acting with these news people. And then to see them just moments later, just husks of, of humanity and the girls are crying and the acting coach is crying. And, the, and Philip is 
holding everybody on the crew back just to leave them the hell alone, which again is this kind of wonderful. Yeah. I just saw it. I just saw what this is. And these people are the ones who felt it. And we're all going to just stay out of their way for a little bit. It's just one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in a making of. And I advise everybody. I don't know how it's not in the DVD, I guess. I don't know how you see it looks. It looks like it's available on YouTube. Following the um, rabbit proof fence. Following the rabbit proof fence. Looks like it's available on YouTube. Uh, the Australian original uh, Aboriginal documentary. For a limited time, uh, sorry, you can hold save on. Big on. I know we're hearing Samsung a commercial. Phones. Hold on. Like la, 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 la. <laughs> um, See if it yeah, actually it looks plays. Like the whole or thing's here. Say, this yeah. is where you insert your nickels now. <laughs> yeah. No, it's here. The whole forty-five minute thing. Yeah, well, it's on here. You have to see the movie for the documentary really to work, and you do kind of have yep. to see it in that order. So. But I just strongly recommend both. If you've seen Rabbit Proof Fence, dive into that doc. It's it's a short, like I say, it's a short news segment. Mm-hmm. But it's it's really wonderful and kind of amazing. And uh, and the film itself is one of my favorites ever. And so I just sort of kind of like ever you know wanted to take a few moments. I took way too long actually to give that a <laughs> shout out. Well, of course I did, but. Got to fit a um, deep dive in, so we better move yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, you know, uh, along those same lines, you know, this this horrible moment in history uh, and and something, you know, this historical uh, drama. Um, I've been watching Hawkeye on Disney Plus, so um, very least watched Disney Plus Marvel TV series today. Uh, it's really good. More people should be watching it. If well, you, you know, like they the say films. that and then make a deal, big deal out of it. We're going to talk about a couple of cases where, again, mm-hmm. where the headlines are just the wrong thing. Yeah, only right. 10 trillion people are watching Hawkeye, whereas 13 <laughs> trillion watched, you know, One Loki division, or whatever. Right. It's like, come on. Yeah. Hey, um, yeah, Marvel no. fans, it's going to end someday. You're going to get sick of this stuff and it's going to go away. This is not what movies are going to mm-hmm. be for the next 30 years. And what we're left with the day that happens, like what's left over, is be not. It's gonna be rubble. <laughs> so be getting ready for that. But I don't think Hawkeye is the beginning of the end. You're saying it's really good. And- it's you know for like for this character that was probably you know one of the most uh, overlooked and not really you know cared about characters. Uh, it it really is uh, it, you know. And Jeremy Renner, I go hot and cold with him. He's just—he's really good. He's a goofy, he's really, goofy guy in life, but I think yeah. he's a fantastic actor, actually. Yeah, he really is. He's really great, and um, you know, and uh, I will say, uh, as someone who uh, takes uh, I- inclusion uh, for people with disabilities uh, in, in art very seriously, uh, it's that is a. It, that is a very important part of this of this show so far and that's really fascinating to me well and not um, only so. not only is the uh is representation a part of the show but they they were all they all took a couple of weeks as a group as a crew and as a cast to learn basic ASL so they they mm-hmm. just the basics you know so they're not having probably really complex conversations but so that to make the the people feel comfortable and to have a set where everybody was communicating where the mm-hmm. where the deaf character the deaf actor whatever it be isn't just sort of doesn't just go off into the corner with their <laughs> interpreter yeah. and just stay there until the next thing happens they 
they they they've all experienced some version of that, and they I think it's a very cool behind the scenes story that they made yeah. sure that yeah. everybody had a basis for communicating the basics with somebody who was going to be an important part of the show. I think that's very yeah. Cool. Th- that's what I so I've been watching Hawkeye and the Wheel of Time series on uh, on uh, Amazon because I I like those books a lot, um, and that they're fun. They're it's it's good. It that's good public gum. It's hard to call nine hundred page books in a ten book series. <laughs> fun that is a sure. massive chore from hell ma- <laughs> for somebody who doesn't read that much so just before you start yeah. tackling the wheel of time based on it's fun just look ahead and see what you're getting it is, into it is I, um yeah i mean it's for if it's for people who thought that uh you know george rr R. martin or j r r uh Tolkien. <laughs> or uh, James Tolkien, uh, if they felt like they glossed over too many things, they really should. <laughs> they should give Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series a go. Um, yeah, so but it, it's you know it's really good. Uh, the the you know I love the the you know the idea behind it was Bezos literally said to his Amazon uh, you know his Amazon Studios people, give me a give me, make Game of Thrones look like crap. Yeah, and gave them all this money to do it, and uh, and it, you know, they so have far, all the money. Yeah, it's pretty, and it's uh, you know, it's fun. It's good. It's a it's a good time. It's better value um, than speaking, rocket ships to the moon. I'll tell you that. It there, I would say that. Yeah, um, I you know, uh, speaking of Game of Thrones, one of the other things that we're you know we're going to talk a little, little bit about a couple tidbits in the news. Um, there was the uh, you know there was all this uh, talk. There's been talk uh, you know even before the final uh, before the final season. Uh, what HBO do some sort of spinoff series? Would they you know what would they create? Or, you know they gotta keep this story going somehow because it's so popular. Well, Game of Thrones so, was for HBO was the thing. It was the most watched. Yeah. It well it didn't start out that way. It was just another expensive like Rome or like uh, what's yeah. the the Gold Rush one, uh, the Western. Can't remember. Uh, really good. Uh, Deadwood. Yeah, Deadwood. Um, sorry, Michael. Deadwood. <laughs> um, the <laughs> the you know they it started out like that, but obviously by the end of it, it was the biggest thing on the planet. And they how we have to keep that going, or the subscribers are going to go away. And then they did. I mean, they really did by the millions when Game of Thrones ended. So mm-hmm. the idea being, well, it's this giant world. We got the author. We, you know, we'll, we'll just we got all these options for these other stories to tell. This uh, they and they had a whole bunch of in development, and they basically said, eh, "Don't get too excited. Not all of these are going to happen. We're starting the dominoes, mm-hmm. but some of them are going to kind of stop. But one of them, and this isn't. It's kind of funny. The only thing that's news is what it actually cost. That news came out. Otherwise, this is ancient news." Um, it really is. This happened. They shot this pilot, had Naomi Watts in it. It did take place. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a name, but it does take place during the age of heroes in old Valyria. And it presumably leads to the fall of Valyria and in game of Thrones. Well, keeping it short, Valyria is essentially Rome. If you're going to compare it to something in our own Western history of Western civilization. And, yeah. um, you know, it's where the, dragons first words where the dragons go home to when they are free themselves um it uh, so it's 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 a meaningful and magical place 
But the pilot didn't really come together. They shot the whole thing, and when they saw the first rough cut of it, they they just agreed, um, you know, this this isn't working. You know, we need to cut our losses here. So the yeah. the only thing that's news now is this thirty million dollar bill, which apparently people are again. I don't I don't know where that comes from. People are getting making a really big deal about that amount of money on a wasted pilot, but that's nothing. The HBO as absolutely right. nothing to Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos, if he met you on the street, could write you out a check for $30 million. And from a tax standpoint, he'd probably profit by doing so. It's just not, you know, I think you need yeah. to not compare with these giant, it's corporations that run our entertainment now. You know, you can go back not too far in time to something like Rabbit Proof Fence and see where it is, was otherwise. But that is how it is now. $30 million is nothing, so the schadenfreude of value of the story is kind of pointless. The only thing I right. would say that's tragic about it, it's not that some cajillionaire with too much money lost $30 million. It's that, you know, they were going to do a uh, series about old Valyria. Now they're not yeah. going to do one and they probably won't try one again. And that I think for people steeped in game of Thrones lore is kind of sad, but it, you know, it, it's kind of like whatever. They they even said at the time, one of the executives came on. He said, yeah, you know, we were going through a time where we were we had money just falling out of the thing and not a plan to go forward. And a lot of the mm-hmm. things we did during that era were extremely wasteful. And somebody finally came in and said, you know, it's not – we shouldn't be wasteful even if we have all the money in the world. Just out of principle, I, it's not helping us create good art. And I think that yeah. was, I think that's wise. And I think it's smart that they sort of changed gears. But when you see the $30 million price tag and you see on all these OMGs in the comments sections, I'm kind of like, y'all, yeah. y'all need to really reevaluate what these things are costing these days. It's, it will blow your yeah, mind. Yeah, I can't, I guess I can't, you know, I, I it feels, again, I don't, and I don't want to be conspiracy theorist or it, it feels, it feels like the, uh, also, though, that it's it's sort of being done to just because they you know, they do have uh, what is it? Age of the Dragons or whatever. Dance of uh, Dragons. Uh, whatever yeah. the one that is called. House of the Dragon. That's House what of the it Dragon, is. which does House takes, of the takes place during the Targaryen Civil War. Yeah. And so they have that one going forward. So like you said, they had a bunch of projects that they were like, well, we could look at this and we could maybe go down this road and we could do this because George R. R. Martin has all these, uh, you know, um, you know, he has, uh, he, you know, all these different uh, books that take place in the world of Game of Thrones. Right. Um, and uh, uh, it, 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 so it, I don't know, there's just something about it that it, it feels like it was put out there. It, it's just something to to i don't know somehow when this new one comes out they'll be able to talk about well this is what made it through when they spent 30 million on one that so this better be good this if they've spent 30 million and scrapped it well the, what did they spend the final season of, feels, yeah, the final season of game weird. of thrones the episodes cost about 50 million each each yeah so it's just when you're starting from scratch i don't know how much the wheel of time at first episode cost, but I, or the I'm, Lord of the Rings one is costing, but I can just promise you it's, it's millions and millions yep. and millions of dollars. So yep. yeah, this one failed, but pilots fail sometimes. Game of Thrones own pilot completely failed 
and got cut. And it was only by kind of a miracle that they were allowed to try another one. So, and I can promise you that costs mm-hmm. some millions of dollars too. Get, get, I just, for our audience, you guys probably already know our philosophy on this, but just in general, just get your eyes off the millions. You know, yeah. if you want to pay attention to what millions of things, millions of dollars are spent on, you know, go look at the defense budget. <laughs> don't be, don't be fussing yeah. over what the amazing Spider-Man movies cost or it just, that's, if, yeah, that just again, shouldn't yeah, be part, that shouldn't be a primary part of your, the way you approach the storytelling yeah. that you choose to fill your life with. I really don't think it yeah, helps. Again, uh, you know, culturally we've, we've become, uh, we tend to associate how much money something costs with its actual value with it, right. it being good right. or, you know, or, it, oh, it, or, you know, people being behind it, people's belief in it. I think it is yeah. more than just, it costs this much. So it's awesome. It's, they really thought this was going to be awesome or they wouldn't have made this right. kind of investment and millions well, of dollars, millions and millions of dollars, you know, they do make a difference in how these studios function. So don't, don't get me wrong. But yeah. It, I mean, we've, we've even said, you know, we've even said like maybe once or twice on this show, we're like, Oh, if only they had like another, another million dollars, they could have invested in this post-production thing. What's the next uh, you story? Know. The next story leads right into this. Cor- same correct. Line of yes, it do. Yes, I do. Um, yeah, we were going to talk about the last duel, uh, the Ridley Scott film, the uh, with Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and uh, um, oh, hunky man meat, um, Adam Driver, uh, Adam Driver, and um, it, 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 yeah, and, <laughs> and Ridley Scott was on the Mark Maron podcast because right, he has House of Gucci coming off. Talk about two movies yeah. in the same year. Good lord. Um, and so, and he was asked about. Uh, about the fact that The Last Duel uh, underperformed. And Mark Maron, you know, Mark Maron was like, well, you know, was that the studio, the studio not do, you know, not do enough to promote it? And Ridley Scott's like, no. Well, Ridley had a caveat. He said, you know, I've been doing movies with Fox my whole career, primarily. And Mm -hmm. I thought the Disney people wouldn't get into this and wouldn't sell it or, you know, would sell it as something it's not. But he, he said they got all the way behind it. They hard sold it. They, he thought yeah. they sold it for what it was and gave you a fair expectation of what you were going to get. So he said, I got no problem with what the studio did. Yeah. What was his problem? <laughs> he got the quote. His quote. Let me, I'll read the quote here. I'm going to censor the uh, F bomb that he drops, but he <laughs> says, I think what it boils down to, this is his quote Ridley Scott. I think what it boils down to what we've got today uh, the audiences who were brought up on these effing cell phones, the millennials do not ever want to be taught anything unless you are told it on the cell phone. Uh, and uh, this is broad stroke, but I think we're dealing with it right now with Facebook. There is a misdirection that has happened where it's uh, given the wrong kind of confidence to this latest generation, I think. Um, and <laughs> Wrong kind uh, of confidence. He, I love that. <laughs> yeah, the wrong kind of confidence. Uh, and he's, he, you know, he, and he goes on, you know, he talks about this, you know, a, he talks about like, uh, back in, you know, when Blade Runner came out, he, he blamed Pauline Kyle, uh, for, um, for this article that she wrote on it, this review in New Yorker and that thing, you know, he felt it turned off, it literally turned off lots of thought, the thoughtful audience that was out there that eventually Mm -hmm. found their way to this movie at that time in a very key way. 
She was a terrible critic. I, people really love her, but I yeah. can't stand no, her. No, she was horrible. She was she was not good. Yeah. Um, She's a really she, really she, good writer. So she has a re- she had a really lot of power, and she wrote mm-hmm. obviously for one of the most well read rags ever. So she's a legend. But as a movie critic, you start quoting her, well, and you and find you find very little wisdom, and you find very little. What's the word we use all the time? Clarity. It's all yeah. about her sort of snark and her sort of New York uh, well, sarcasm. Yeah, became, and, yeah. It became not about a review of the movie. It became uh, what is what what is her, you know, what is, it, she became the story. It's right. it's Pauline Kyle's review of it. And so you're reading, you know, she becomes this, you know, she becomes a story. Yeah, I mean, she was one of those that if you ever. Uh, you know, she's a very good writer. And if you um, if you ever that's undeniable, uh, to know, even if you don't like yeah. her, which I don't. That's yeah, and I was going to say, and if you ever wanted to know how good of a writer she is, just ask her. <laughs> um, and uh, so but yeah, so he you know, so yeah, poor good old Ridley, you know, he's kind yeah, of I'm sure Marin uh, was eating that up because he's no fan of superhero movies either at all. Him and yeah, him and Bill Maher probably are the two guys out there that are most outspoken against our current sort of tops in the entertainment world. And yeah. uh, look, I'll say the same thing about this. Ridley's not wrong, but I think it's not fair of him to, we do it on the show. Millennials, Gen Z. I read this great post from not a wolf on TV. He's my favorite. He's the only sort Hello, of weird fake personality. Yep. Yeah. He said, one thing Gen Z will never understand is my specific emotions and experiences. And of course <laughs> that's, you know, that's we all pitted mm-hmm. against each other. It's and that's too bad. But that's that is how the generations operate. So, you know, we're yeah. Joel and I are dyed in the wool Gen Xers all the way. So you get yeah, a certain are. perspective from us. And as much as we may, you know, um shed that occasionally and do something unexpected, we are sort of trapped in that way of looking at the world um Uh, (laughs) so i don't blame the millennials but i will tell you that just from a theatrical release standpoint it's the same thing they were trying to this you know uh the bond movie no time to die came out around the same Mm -hmm. time and that movie made making about 900 million dollars worldwide and that's not much for a bond movie but it's a ton for it's more than any other movie released this past year so it's is number one globally and they're trying to sort of paint it like, well, it cost a ton, which it did. Like it's some sort of bomb. You know, they're trying to stick it with something. They're they're throwing dirt at it to see what sticks. And then, and if something does, everything's going to pile on it. The reality is, yep. the reality is Ridley, and it's, it's it, you know, it's time that your, maybe your budgets reflect this. Because I think Last Duel, which I haven't seen, House of Gucci, probably both really great. They look good, and I'm excited for both of them. I'm excited for the final Bond movie in a more measured way, but I'm still really excited for it because we're big bond fans around here, as you know. Um, I don't know if people know this. We, we did a couple episodes. We generation X didn't go out to see these movies. The baby boomers didn't go out to see them. That's key. We're the ones who could have made last duel a hit. And we're the ones that could have made no time to die. A massive hit. No time to die. Got us out a little bit, but only a little portion of us not enough to make it a big super mega global hit the way they wanted and so i really think it's just with respect to millennials on their phones if that's really a thing gen z on their phone um it's really us we're we this is a bad time for us we don't want to go to the movies 
You know, right. we don't trust the other people sitting in the movie with us for two and a half hours to do the right thing. We don't want to stand in the lobby. We don't want to be touching the same stuff in the public bathroom. I mean, this thus is the world, and it sucks. Yeah. But if you look at it that way, then Last Duel actually did okay, and, and No Time to Die did amazing. Because the people who these things are targeted to aren't out there yet. They just yeah, aren't. That's so. That, yeah, and that and that's and you know and that yeah, and that's that's the takeaway. Is you're right. It, it's it's the people who are going uh, to see the, movies, the, people, the youth of America. Yeah, they're not into Last Time to Die or Last. They're duel. not going to go they're, into La, or Last Duel. Those movies were made for the, these two. These right. two guys Whether right Ridley here, knows it or not, he's and, in his yeah. he's in his late seventies or whatever. He should know better. By yeah. Now that, yeah, boomer. Yeah, boomer Ridley. <laughs> Um, no, uh, I'm not dissing uh, them. Yeah. I loved, I loved that quote no, and thought that Ridley was really Scott. fun. And yeah, I think and there's, there's a real kernel of truth in what he's saying, but I think there's this other pragmatic part of it where, right, they didn't like it or didn't even want to try it. We did, but we didn't go. That's the world mm -hmm. you're in. And when you're planning your release schedule, you know, think about that a little bit, probably yeah. at this point. Although... Don't think about it too much, because I lament the loss of days when Last Duel gets a big marketing push and a big theatrical release. I still want those sorts of projects to break through, mm -hmm. but that's my take on that. Yeah, uh, one last little—well, uh, not little—but uh, you know, we uh, we uh, posted about it on our on our social media, um, you know, and it's been uh, all over the news. And, and we got a lot of reactions to it. Thank you for that. That's nice. It's nice yeah. to be able to share these moments with others. That's part of the whole uh, yeah deal of this. the uh, yeah, the the one of the giants of uh, of, of American theater. Uh, passed away this past uh, this past week. Um, Stephen Sondheim, at the age of ninety one, uh, prolific uh, pr pr prolific writer yeah. and um, and composer uh, and uh, the 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 scourge of many a musical theater performer because uh, he uh, is one of the most. It, it's advanced like, as it's like it's, singing it's math. One of the one yeah. of actors once said, "Yeah." <laughs> Yeah, it's it is. It's it's uh you know it's advanced musical theater. It yeah, is. I mean, truly. yeah, this is a guy who would do who would do who try to who would solve math theorems for fun, yeah. um, and 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 did take a a very mathematical approach, but in the in the in that approach, ultimately, once you started to perform Sondheim and once you started singing him with regularity, uh, you discovered that all of it was. Uh, designed to make your singing sound more conversational. So once you get got into it, uh, it it you know th th that's why so many of his you know into the woods yeah uh, it, it, it you know some of it it flows really you know flows really quickly. Uh, Ryan and I were lucky a gajillion years ago to be in a production of of uh, Assassins in College. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's it was uh, uh, it was really you know it, it was if, it just a, a mind blowing show. Um, and um, yes, yeah, Sweeney Todd, Sunday in the Park with George, a little yep. night music company. 
Um, just the list goes yep. on and on. It's just, he's, yep. you know, into the woods. Definitely. I think of the more recent people, that's a really significant show. Um, assassin certainly was for us. So it, it, and you know, he started just writing lyrics with his mentor, Leonard Bernstein. He wrote the lyrics to West side mm-hmm. story among others. And that of course it's fitting that, that Spielberg's West side story is coming out in a few weeks. Um, and that musicals, you know, Annie was on a couple nights ago on NBC. Annie, who doesn't love? If you don't love Annie, you know, just check your heart. Check check your heart. Annie Go to a heart specialist. Moments. Here's you what know. I'll say. Annie was good despite the efforts of many of the people on camera. Well, these these TV <laughs> music live TV musicals. I haven't seen a good one yet, to be honest. Oh yeah, it was it was there, it but was tough. I, um, I love them. I love them anyway. I, I you me know too. I love them because they I love that. There's something about them. It's it's ballsy to do a live event on television to tell any sort of live story and then add the music, song and dance aspect to it. To me, that's just that's really exciting. So I didn't watch Annie, you know, whatever. I was watching football, but the it, it, I love it. I love. I hope they keep doing that, despite the fact that they all aren't good. You know, Sound of Music wasn't very good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, no, Peter yeah, Pan there, wasn't there very a, good, and Rent was terrible. And, and, and these terrible. shows are all Jesus good. Christ, Superstar so, was names, all right? Yeah, yeah they um, weren't it, right, but it. I still um, keep up the good work. And yeah, keep trying. Eventually, you'll get. Eventually, one of these maybe will will become uh, in our year end episodes. We're going to talk about in the heights. We're going to talk about tick tick boom about Jonathan Larson. Mm-hmm. Um, those we have all that coming. It's a good era. I've said and I keep saying it, and I'll probably keep saying it even after I see it. I don't understand why Spielberg threw his all his late career weight behind West Side Story because there's already a perfect movie version of West Side Story. That's my only yeah. issue with it because I'm sure because he's exactly the right guy for the material and I mean I'm sure it's going to be glorious. It's getting pretty rave reviews. I still am kind of like, geez, you, you yeah. had a chance to make your movie musical, you know. You just had to pick one that didn't already win all the Oscars, you know. Mm-hmm. So... There, but I'm still excited to see that because it's West Side Story. And, you know, I just saw a couple summers yeah. ago, I saw Joel in West Side Story. It's glorious. It was wonderful. It, it was. It, uh, I, you know, I, I had, it was. Uh, that, West Side Story has its the, challenges, but it never gets bad. You know what I'm saying? It's yep. good. And and I'm still working on, still working on it. Hopefully maybe having um, a, a, a cast member of, um, of West Side Story on the show. West Side Story. Um, uh, she, on the show as Anita, in your version of the Guthrie's version of West Side Story, she, she yes, spectacular. Just knock me she's, out. Just knock yeah, me out from from the word go. And what do we yeah. always say? Without, you know, Anita's allowed to steal the show. Really, when it's her mm-hmm. big moments, but she's not allowed to when it's not her big moments. Yes, she's through the whole show, and she was just just dynamite. Whilst not being an obnoxious scene stealing actor, and I, I to me that's yeah. the magic of of live theater yeah, for uh, sure, but of of cinema too. We've said it time and time again. Yeah, Anna Isabel, and she also has a uh, spectacular story of how she booked the movie. I've um, heard it. So I'm, I'm hoping I would be need to hear from can, her own ears. Yeah, but I'm if we don't, have that. here's our second shout out to her because she is yep. really awesome. So. She's great, and we're I'm, yeah, it's super, it's super exciting to have a friend um, in in this movie. Yeah, uh, so yeah, Stephen Sondheim passing. I mean, it it is. I mean, 
modern musicals are what they are. There would be no Hamilton without without Stephen Sondheim. There would be no. Uh, uh, I'm trying to, you know, trying to think of some of the other uh, come from away that none, you know, that Pasek and Paul, uh, Bench Pasek and, and uh, I can't remember that. Uh, but they, you know, they, they're the, they're the toast du jour uh, um, of, of musical theater right now. Um, Gypsy, Gypsy's they, the other movie you wrote the lyrics for. My goodness. Yeah. Gypsy's the other. And um, yeah. And, and, you know, n- none of these, none, none of the composers coming through uh, right now would, um, would would be where they are uh or, or you know the, the kind of musicals that we're getting right now the subject matter of the musicals that we're getting now we would not have that very very Steven experimental Sondheim. subject matter all throughout his career yeah. truly yeah. yeah so um you'd still yeah, have so the cats and phantom of the opera so don't feel too bad we but. We, we yes we would and we, <laughs> you know we would have we would have some, uh, you know, there'd be some French revolutionary stuff uh, out there. Still out there. But the, the his influence on American musical theater, is it can't be quantified, yeah. truly. Correct. He really is. He really is amazing. And no small, uh, he made quite a dent in the world of film as well, truly. Yeah. Not just in yeah. his the adaptations of his musicals, but the songs from Dick Tracy. And you can just kind of go back through time and it's, those songs of his and that stuff is sprinkled throughout um, mm-hmm. films as long as he's been doing music. And it, it's very, he's, we're just very grateful for him. And he was an old man and he lived a brilliant self actualized life. So we don't mourn him so much as we really do. It's a good time to celebrate him. Yeah. You know, and here's the deal. Uh, we're also going to get new music from him. He was working right up right. until he passed away. Right. So, you know, there's there's still potentially some some new uh, some new Sondheim music that we'll get to experience. And and that which will always be, you know, always, always be interesting. Some of it is not awesome. The second act of In, Into the Woods is not great. The musical passion, not not awesome, but um, enough not of a big what fan he, of passion. But that's whatever. You know, yeah, um, but uh, uh, so much of what he uh, of what he created um, just just spectacular. Um, but yeah, so we uh, mentioned um, we mentioned West Side Story coming out with Stephen Sondheim. Uh, next up, we are going to take uh, something of a mini a mini deep dive. It kind of makes me want. I wish I could like just speed up our fanfare so it'd be like mm, deep dive. Um, but <laughs> I should have no thought of that before. Up of the fanfares. <laughs> but we are going to talk about a, uh, a movie produced by Steven Spielberg. Um, and uh, which uh, I'm, I'm it'll be it's fun to talk about. It's a fun movie. It's young Sherlock Holmes. And it, it is also responsible for one of the uh, funniest uh, text messages. Ryan um, uh, has, has has sent me in a very long time. Well, can't wait to hear what was, that was. Well, it just <laughs> it was when we were trying to come up with ideas for this show. Huh. Um, and uh, uh, but anyway, we are going to get into it. It is a deep dive on Young Sherlock Holmes. Uh, 
Have to. Have to Scarlett do Scarlett Johansson from Ghost in the Shell. That's what that is. I've said that wrong like two or three times throughout the show. Oh, really? I never got Christopher Cross mixed up with Krista Berg, though, so I'm not a complete idiot like Joel. But I, I have been misattributing that. Because <laughs> I can't spit out what it is, unfortunately. That's from Ghost in the Shell. You can look, skip look, that I'm one. Not, I'm not... Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not saying... I don't remember making that mistake. I'm sure I did. You, you did. Uh, uh, when we no. were talking about Christopher Cross, you made a woman in red reference. That's not right. That's right. You're right. You're right. Busted. Okay. I have the proof. It's on tape. I, no, I believe you. I believe you. I feel like I hurt your um, feelings uh, for real. I didn't mean to do that. Well, no, because I was like, when did I do that? That seems like... I, to, I like I said, I believe you. I meant to gently tease you, not, not to send you reeling into some... <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm spiraling now. That was not what I'm I wanted to do. I'm spiraling. No. Sorry. No. <laughs> Oh, oh, no, no. <laughs> oh no! What did I do? Uh, all right, young Sherlock uh, Holmes. No, young Sherlock Holmes. Uh, I mean, yeah, this is. I mean, again, young Sherlock Holmes, uh, directed by Barry Levinson, uh, produced by um, by. Well, I mean, it, Steven Spielberg and that group is. They're not the main. You know, they're part of the producing team. No, they're the producing. Uh, they're the main thing. Th there was a time in the early '80s, and it came to fruition in 1984, big time. Uh, it sort of started. I mean, we could go all the way back and talk about Amblin Entertainment and Steven Spielberg's producing on the side, but he produced as many big iconic '80s hits as he directed. At yeah. least as yeah. many, maybe maybe slightly more on the producing side. It started, of course, with Poltergeist. We won't get into that, but it definitely executive produced in a major way by Spielberg. And and uh, the big one in 84 for him was uh, written by this kid, Chris Columbus, called Gremlins. And we're yeah. not, I'm not a big Gremlins fan. Joel does. Joel likes it a little better than me, but he didn't really love it either. Yeah. So we don't we don't really talk about it very much on the show for a, a rather mm -hmm. iconic film from our childhood. Um, the next movie that he did, Spielberg loved the Gremlins script. It was a big hit. He he had this idea for this treasure hunt movie that he sort of gave the outline to Columbus, and Columbus wrote then wrote the Goonies. Oh God, what did I do? Weird. Not that's we, usually our sound to make a mistake, but we did not make a mistake. I I must I bumped my mouse, I bumped my my trackpad there, and it well, we can just the, the we can just use that for the Krista Berg debacle. There we go, and, and then we can there call we that go. finished and really put that behind us because I really didn't know that was going to be such a source. <laughs> um, a different Christopher Berg, um, Chris Columbus. Now we're talking about. Yeah, terribly sorry for that. Um, he. I was like, what did I do? He wrote The Goonies, which again was a huge hit. So he, he mm -hmm. Columbus had a dream project that he wanted to do, which was this idea that Sherlock Holmes and, and John Watson met in boarding school as children and solved a mystery together. And Spielberg's like, yes, do that. That's great. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that sounds great. That sounds just like the movie everyone will love. And we're on this hot streak, so let, let's do it. It actually came out later in 1985 than The Goonies. So they were making these and writing these all at the same time. And Chris Columbus, 
you know, went on to be more famous for Mrs. Doubtfire and just this whole list of mediocre, sort of mainstream, stupid comedies. Uh, he directed all, all directed into the ground almost the first two Harry Potter films. Um, he's not like a terrible filmmaker, but he was he started out as this hotshot screenwriter. Truly, he was mm-hmm. writing one family's PG thirteen hit after another, and and this was sort of the third one, and this was the one he was really really excited about doing, and it. It's a. I have to say, it's a neat idea. When I pitched the idea just now, I, it excites me too. It's really, really cool. And the movie's not half bad. I don't. I don't. I'm going to be a little harder on it. I think the Joel, even though I, I'm a kind of fan of it, definitely. Uh, it. It just. It's really weird, and it's really oddly prophetic in a lot of ways. I call it the nexus with which all sort of post. Generation X, you know, 80s and 90s movies spring from and cross through because there's so many things that it does that all these other films did in the future. And there's so many weird ways it affected future Sherlock Holmes lore, whether consciously, unconsciously, or just simply coincidentally. And it's fun to talk about because those when those things spring up, you're like, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Part of it was... Columbus was a huge Sherlock Holmes fan, read every story multiple times. His he's he was absolutely terrified that there were two hurdles he had to get over. One, he had to get the the Arthur Conan Doyle estate, which is still run in a rather serious way by his descendants to agree to let him do it. And then the second thing is when he did it, he had to not offend all of the Sherlock Holmes fans out there in the world. The first thing he managed with an absurd amount of caveats (laughs) attached (laughs) from any movie I think I've ever seen. I've never seen the same disclaimer three times in the same movie. Right. Uh, We're going to read each of them to you as we go through this (laughs) because they're funny. All of them are funny and wonderful in their own way. Um, But it... It it's it's an odd meeting. The, my first three chapters of my deep dive here are Amblin, which is Steven Spielberg, fourteen ninety two, which is Chris Columbus's production company, and the third, which Joel's already mentioned, is Baltimore Productions, which is Barry Levinson. Barry Levinson is the weirdest choice for this material that I can think of. This is such a weird wart and just stand out like zit on the tip of your nose of his career <laughs> and i don't want to me just use negative terms because it's not a bad movie it's certainly not a badly directed movie but it's so odd it's it there's nothing of levinson in it except a cameo from this actor that appears in all of his movies without that guy i don't think you'd even know i just don't think you'd even know this film feels like it was directed by chris columbus to be honest and i guess that's just levinson yeah he's one of those uh directors who's got this amazing sort of career but he's one of the ones i'm kind of hard on because he's not a writer and because he's not a writer he's an absolute slave to the script that he's working on every time he sets out to do a project in a way that spielberg and ridley scott managed to sort of manipulate the writing to fit a vision barry levinson really if he starts with a bad script you get a bad movie and if he starts with a great one you get a pretty great one and there's no real in between 
Um, and he's another guy who, despite him starting as a writer, so I shouldn't say he's not a writer. He, like Columbus, started out as a screenwriter and then just stopped writing once he got directing gigs. He had a writing partner. Maybe she was doing the heavy lifting in the early days. I'm not sure. But he wrote Inside Moves, and he wrote like a bunch of scripts early on. And now he doesn't, and I don't understand that. But yeah. anyway, Barry Levinson, this is a weird way to bring him into the show because it's a total outlier on his filmography. But right. it's still pretty good. Uh, what's the chapter that I haven't gotten to is the first disclaimer. Are we up to that? Sure. Sure. One thing I want to, you know, cause I don't see it in your, uh, in your thing at all, uh, in your, uh, outline at all. Um, yeah. and uh, is bringing up the fact that Henry Winkler is also a producer. On oh, yeah. This. yeah. Which started uh, producing yeah. with this film and with, uh, MacGyver in the same year. Yeah. Launched yeah. The same so year. it, it was, uh, yeah, it was just sort of like, is that it? Uh, as as I started watching it again, uh, Jennifer, my wife, walked by. She's like, "Did that just say Henry Winkler?" And I'm like, "Yes, it did. Yes, it did." Well, and he was um, he was a big time producer on this. I mean, he was kind of yeah. the big time producer on it in a way. He yeah. He, whereas Spielberg kind of oversaw certain things and stuff, and was the exec behind it, and was the Steven Spielberg presents, you know. And it's yeah. very Spielbergian, very Spielbergian. Same way yeah. Goonies is, even though it's a Richard Donner film. Same way Gremlins is, frankly, even though it's a Joe Dante film. It's very, very Spielbergian. Um, maybe even more so than those other two. More Spielbergian than even Goonies, which Stephen wrote. Yeah. Um, it, so, yeah, Henry Winkler, that's worth mentioning. Although, Henry yeah. Winkler being a super producer for the 80s isn't news. He really, that's what he did. That's why he didn't appear in anything. He didn't see... Thankfully, the page, like it does if you're patient enough, Ed O'Neill, you know, some of these guys, he just, he really didn't see the Fonz, he just didn't see them, anybody giving them any, any, any kind of work. And yet he was sort mm-hmm. of a smart show business guy and got into producing and he produced some very successful things. So good on him, yeah. I have to say. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, all right. So next up is the uh, is the first and uh, the pre prologue Arthur Conan Doyle estate disclaimer number one. Go for it. It is. It says so. We get um, in this great gold uh, this this lovely That's font great. that the whole opening credits is done in. Mm-hmm. The following story is original and not specifically based on the exploits of Sherlock Holmes as described in the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Thanks for that. Thanks. Any, yeah, just make sure, good, just make just sure, make sure that the audience know. who might think Doyle wrote this, he didn't. Mm-hmm. He, he actually, there is a scene in Arthur Conan Doyle's canon of, of Watson and Sherlock meeting for the first time. So they couldn't have met as as uh, tweens in boarding mm-hmm. school. What's in that title of the next chapter? Help me out. God rest you, married gentlemen. We're going to talk about oh, Bruce yeah, Broughton's yeah, yeah. score. So the movie starts with God rest you, Jer- married gentlemen, and a dude sort of walking the streets of London. It's a great, great uh, use of of London sets. Today, if you're going to shoot, uh, if you're going to make a movie in London, you probably go to Prague because all the buildings right. feel like that age and everything. This film they shot uh, in England with a mostly english crew even though the big wigs were all americans and an entirely english cast good on them um but they 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 just something about it, it the, a big part of the winningness of this film is the atmosphere the 
Christmassy, snowy London a- atmosphere, Victorian England. It's, I say in a future chapter, it's very, very Dickensian. It really does feel like you're about to watch Christmas Carol. It has yeah. that sense of it. it um, Broughton, Bruce Broughton is one of my favorite film composers. And I haven't done that many movies. Uh, I don't know if he's just not in favor. I don't know how he couldn't be. Perhaps he's a little bit too musical. Certainly he is for today's movies, but Broughton to me will always be immortalized forever in in the the musical score for the Western Silverado. I think that with respect oh, yeah. with respect to Ennio Marconi, with respect to Elmer Bernstein, I really believe Silverado has the best Western score ever committed to film. I just adore it. I adore every note of it. And this film, again, came out later the same year, so this really was him mm-hmm. at his apex, even though it was also him sort of being introduced to the world of big big uh, cinema. But the musical score for for young Sherlock Holmes is extraordinary. It, it's Silverado, it's like Silverado in a way. Silverado's got two or three themes it's actually got like a half dozen, but it, it sticks to two or three in this very, in a way that the director of that film, Lawrence Kasdan, wanted. And that lesson mm-hmm. is carried over into this film. The film's got a lot of musical variations. Characters have a lot of different sort of underscoring bits and stuff. But there's a couple of big, big John Williams-like thematic things that it sticks to. Absolutely. One is this twiddly sort of, it's a mystery. What's happening? You know, it's, yeah. you know, blah, 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 blah. And that, yeah. that sort of carries through the film. And the other is this, it's Spielberg. We're flying through the crowds and the trees, this huge bombastic, like heroic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like just magic of youth sort of free yeah. song. It's, it's just really, really wonderful. It's almost, it's almost Sherlock Holmes flying past the moon in silhouette. <laughs> Very much. It really is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really does sweep you off your feet in a wonderful way. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know, Joel, that that Amblin logo where E.T. flies across the moon, actually, it's usually shown in silence or with the trail end of the film score fading out. That actually yeah. has a theme song. And this is one of three movies where if you stay all the way to the end, you get to hear it with John Williams' little thing. Oh that yeah, he wrote it, for it. It, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the little. It's almost. It, I did. I did. Say it's a, it's and, ET uh, related it's little, music, as you it's would It's a little expect. flying theme. Yeah, it's a little flying theme esque. Mostly, thing we that see that did, Amblin yeah. logo without music or sans right. that theme. Uh, in the early days, they played it like everything else. They had a little fanfare for it. They played it. Yep. It's at the end of the film, with uh, with a bunch of other weird stuff. Um, including a third, <laughs> a third disclaimer. Yeah, third disclaimer um, which, yeah. <laughs> it's cool. You can feel that. Oh, you can feel yeah. the excitement of Columbus's working on this project that he really believed in. And you, but you can also feel that reverence for the character and for the, you know, there's that sense mm-hmm. of God, I hope this is okay that I did this. You know, that's very <laughs> much a part of this. So, but Bruce Broughton's music, it, it, it's, it's, I dare I say it is the best thing about, it's the best single production element about young Sherlock Holmes. It completely yes. elevates it and makes it feel like it's much, much more special than it really is when you take it apart into pieces. And right. that's, to be fair, that's what a great score should do. And I don't think young Sherlock Holmes is considered a great score 
but it is it really is it's, really really good yeah the music is really is is really terrific in this we film. took for granted um, and, that at the time and, in 1985 because yeah. every score was like this during that era yeah and and you and, know and yeah and, and they are, aren't anymore so when you go back and you hear one that's really special it sort of knocks you out and i sort of feel like um there's a scene coming up uh, and i'm sort of and i'm like did William, did John Williams, uh, you know, did take a, take a listen a little bit to, <laughs> to young Sherlock Holmes to, uh, for something for, in the future uh, for, for, for Temple of Doom. Well, um, Temple of Doom came first. Oh, did it? Yes. But we'll get to the oh, Temple of Doom. Oh my God, I Doom thought it was. Because this film has a Temple of Doom in it as well. 86. Yes, it does. Um, all right. So, uh, we'll all get right, to so that we, when we get to it, but you're not wrong about that. Yeah, so you you know we talked about it being Dickensian, and that's the that was the next uh, the next chapter is it? title. Well, it um, is. It it's weird mm-hmm. because it Dickens and Doyle aren't exactly associated with one another, but the it is very Dickensian. And as proof, I plucked the uh, the the created the invented the non Doyle character yep. names out yep. of the scripts mm-hmm. for your and Joel's going to read them for you now. Mrs. Dribb, Rupert T. Waxflatter, Master Snellgrove, Chester Cragwich. Your name is Chester Cragwich. Bentley Bobster. <laughs> I love Bentley Bobster. Uh, and the Reverend Duncan Nesbitt. And Old Curio Shop. There's an Old Curio Shop in it, of course. There's a whole mm-hmm. novel of Dickens called The Old Curiosity Shop. So... So the Dickens isn't happening by accident, which is good. He's not just yep. he's not just subconsciously stealing these things. He's he's taking the time to pay a little tribute to him too in those character names. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are really Dickensian in a great way. They're very memorable. Uh, you well, are I mean, Chester Crest. Yeah, you are Chester Crest. You your name is Chester Chester Craig Criggles. What's <laughs> what's his name? <laughs> yeah. So um, it's it is it's very Dickensian in a, a lovely way. It's you know I, I that's why I like it. That's why I we talk about it at this time of year and not in the summer, because it really it starts out with God rescue Mary gentlemen and it and it, it it's and it's very mm-hmm. uh, there, ghosts aren't in it, but there's there's still this very there's this like host of scrooges that are the murder victims in this particular there you go oh, yep and uh um, number seven the, the next chapter is no you're not hallucinating no you're not this is the this is where me and young sherlock holmes start to depart a little bit maybe not so much <laughs> when i was a kid but uh the film is very famous for a stunning array of both animation effects and it also contains the first major film um, sequence of a Pixar animated effect. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been some shorts and some other little things where Pixar had made its mark up to this point. But this is the first big movie where a uh, digitally animated thing was created by Pixar for yep. uh, Amblin Entertainment. And it's and the, the these characters... Again, this is a deep dive, and this is where we really are going to jump off the edge and start spoiling the hell out of young Sherlock Holmes. So if you haven't seen it, and we've intrigued you, maybe come back to this part later, because here we go. The characters in the story are all shot with a dart that has a poison in it that makes them hallucinate to the point that they basically take their own lives in all sorts of horrific ways. 
um, it, it, the the pro the um, opening sequence, the pre-title sequence, is a sequence of, a, of this old, rich Victorian London bachelor guy who goes out Bentley to Bobster. goes out to have dinner, and his pheasant that he's about to eat attacks him. And then when he goes oh. home, his uh, his his like wardrobe starts coming to life. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you lived in Victorian England, everything there were gargoyles everywhere your door gargoyles and birds and yeah yeah there's there's literally stuff that if they were alive could start biting you and attacking you and eating you it so the film makes good use of that but it's all it's all a little literal you know i wish that the if in a hands of a of a better director i think that these hallucination sequences would be a little more nightmarish and a little less just animated and cartoonish and mm-hmm. a couple of them are close. A couple of them get there or get at least get a part of the way there. But this opening one, which is really important, isn't. This is really the cheesiest one where all the different animals come together to get this guy with his hunting trophy and whatever. And he throws himself out his window and dies on the street in the snow. And yeah. these similar sorts of these guys, maybe they'll have a connection. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Um... That's how the thing starts. It starts with the first murder, basically, and it's 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 weird. I'll just well, say that. and it's yeah, it's weird. I mean, and and you know, I, I will say that uh, you know one of the things that I I, I did dig about uh, about the you know it's like you have this hooded mysterious figure walking around, um, you know, and and at a time when you want you know, if you were an assassin or if you're a killer and you're going around, obviously you would think that you would want to be quiet. Uh, but this person always is wearing some sort of jingly bell and loves the fact that they're wearing a jingly bell. Cause it's like, that's the only thing you hear. Uh, and yeah, you see the shadow it, and you hear the bell. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, Whatever. Uh, that part, I don't mind. I think, I think the movie is weird to roll out the massive effect sequence so early in the film. If it, right. if it's and going it, to indeed roll them out at all, they're, they're the thing that make this a 1985 Spielberg production where, yeah. and, and the movie while good and the Sherlock Holmes bits while wonderful, never truly rise above these heavy effects sequences that exist yes. in the thing. And I think that, and, I think they this, weigh them down in the end. And this first, uh, this first sequence, this first animated sequence, uh, it, it it does it in a way. There are two, uh, two very specific laugh moments yeah. in this at the very beginning, which tonally does not tonally already because it gets it's all shadowy and like you said, Dickensian, and he's walking through and snowing and bump, Mr. Be, Mr. Bob, Bentley Bobster is walking through and blah, 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 looking and oh, get away from me, you urchins and stuff like that. And and then yet he gets so then he goes in and he orders his favorite little his little pheasant thing and it's laying there. Let's see how, how I can do this. It's so it's like it's it's laying there. And and then all of a sudden, like it, it it how how the effect starts is the head comes up and looks yeah. at him, and it's like this moment, and it's it's kind of this moment. I I I'm assuming they wanted it to be kind of scary, 
but it's kind of funny. It looks like a bit that would be done in the Muppet show. Yeah. Um, and then he has the, I'm being attacked, I'm being attacked, I'm being attacked. And then all of a sudden he re, you know, everyone else, they show him and he's just gasping at you, grabbing at nothing and everything. And everyone's like, what is wrong with this guy? It's, it doesn't help that like, we're shown the outsider's perspective of what's really happening either. I get that the movie's mm -hmm. trying to communicate all this to us, but there, it, it, this thing sucks the mystery out of it. I actually think a guy getting attacked by his pheasant he's about to eat is is funny. Um, the yeah. I think the hat bit when he gets back to his apartment is is funny too. That's a classic old bit, but it just it's by that point this needs to be. Uh, a murder sequence that we take a little bit seriously and you, you never really do. Yep. Um, yep. Agreed. And that's too bad. But that's, to me, that's the specifics of this heavy effect sequence. To me, the heavy effect sequence existing in the first place is the problem. It, it needs mm -hmm. to be more suggestive and it's very, very literal. That said, it's extremely accomplished effects work. It's really, really good stuff. Um, Industrial Light and Magic's probably best work of 1985. It really is. They were very, very proud of it and very sad that the movie sort of yeah. didn't bomb exactly, but it sort of came and went and wasn't, it, it was sort of the end of their big run of kind of perfect, perfect films. Um, yeah, I mean, if it was bigger, they could be celebrating some of these other effects. And now it's just, well, this was our first uh, fully CGI, uh, you know, sequence in a major uh, in a major film. And so, the first uh, CGI okay. sequence, I think we can talk about it now because I don't think we're going to come back to hallucinations until we get to the our hero is actually going through. Yeah. some. So, yeah. you know, there's a couple other murders, but the other big one is the Pixar sequence where this priest, Reverend Nesbitt is attacked by a knight in a stained glass window who jumps out of the wall and lands and walks down the aisle like jingling like broken glass sort of at him mm -hmm. and he runs out into the street and gets hit by a, a carriage but the mm -hmm. that effect is really amazing and the the camera even does a camera move around it so you can it see it swings around yeah you can it's see really that it's great. a one-dimensional glass thing even though when it's coming at you it looks like this real thing it's really mm -hmm. really complicated effect sequence and really really stunning but again yep. not super scary and it's just done and shot in a very straightforward way that highlight the effects at the expense sort of of the 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 scariness or the, you know, they scare these guys mm -hmm. to death basically. Yeah. And, and here's what I'll say. Uh, uh, the, the Reverend Duncan Nesbitt death uh, is uh, it, it, it really illustrates the, um, uh, the fact that this could, you know, how this was not a great way to assassinate these people. Right. These poison darts. Right. It's really, He's he's conveniently run over by a carriage. Correct. He could have easily gotten away. And if he would have just if he would have made it across that street, he would have ended up somewhere and probably would have, you know, locked himself away somewhere. And eventually the poison would have wore off and he would have been the fine. first three murders so, in the film. It's amazing how successful they are, given, like Joel says, how how they really rely on a ton of convenience and good luck on behalf of our villains. Mm -hmm. um in fact it only takes another sober person's presence really to to stop one from working later in the film correct 
Um, so it it is stupid if you think too much about it. And that's a shame because it could be much simpler and much more effective. But look, Young Sherlock Holmes is for kids. I mean, it may be PG-13 and there's certainly violence in it, but it's for kids. They don't want to horrify you. They, they want that's you true. to be amused, you know, uh, a little perturbed, but amused by these sequences. They don't want you thinking too much about mortality or any of that stuff. And frankly, none of Chris right. Columbus's movies do. He's the king of high body counts that have very little emotional value during the course of a film. That's what he is as a yep. writer. And that's, that's what he's always been. And this film's more palatable than some, than most, than Gremlins for sure. Because it, yeah. it, 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 it rides the balance better. And I think that's Levinson, who I'm ripping on a little bit, but I think he really gets what these have to be and just lets them be that and gets through them and allows them to be light without feeling like the film is making fun of these people. And that's, mm -hmm. that's not an easy tightrope to walk. And he does a pretty good job of it so that we can get back to our heroes, which we haven't even talked about yet. Sherlock Holmes is in this yeah. thing, Joel. Yeah. Number eight. And I, you know, I can get this out now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Number eight is dude. This is just like Harry Potter. Well, let me give you the setup. Okay. There's uh, a, well, for, go ahead. let me, before we get into the setup, this is the, one of the funniest things that you've ever sent me really? when we were trying to come up with, when we were trying to come up with show ideas, mm -hmm. uh, you just, um, actually days had gone by and out of nowhere, <laughs> you just wrote, you wrote, 10 ways young Sherlock Holmes is exactly like Harry Potter, the Sorcerer's Stone. I only have six, but I'm convinced I'll find more. <laughs> um, I, don't, I howled. I just it? howled when you sent me that. Um, I didn't really find more, but boy, there's a lot of similarities. And it's yeah. weird because there is a connection. There's no Harry Potter in 1985. That's just, that's not even a dream in somebody's head yet. Right. Uh, and yet this film and Chris Columbus went on to direct the first two Harry Potter movies, as I also said. So the connection is real and yet it can't have anything to do with him. And yet here we go. Uh, you've got this guy, a very clever, special dude who's going off to boarding school. He meets this rather frumpy best friend who's sort of sloppy and clumsy and all these things. And this, uh, just sort of bright young girl who's, uh, unconventionally, lives at the boarding school. It's a school for boys, which is what it would be. Um, she's the daughter of a professor. And they really do match in all sort of thematic and storytelling ways the three heroes from the Harry Potter stories. The the His nemesis, his schoolboy nemesis, is even this obnoxious rich blonde kid, um, you know, who... Who is named Dudley, <laughs> just know. like... Just like Harry Potter's cousin's name is Dudley, right? He's it's like yeah. he's a mix of Draco Malfoy and Dudley. He really Dudley, is like yeah. a, a, a he's those two characters put together. He's got this yeah. sort of dumbass jock bully of Dudley mixed with this high class snooty sort of actually very clever, um, you know, rich evil kid. It's it it's crazy that that's in it. Um, of course. This particular Draco has sort of a crush on um, Hermione at the same time. I'll try not to get into too much Harry Potter nomenclature, but that it's so much so similar. There's, uh, there's, I don't want to say literally. I want to because this is where if you if you're someone who uses literally wrong a lot, this is a great place to <laughs> trot it out. Yeah, it's not literal, but there is 
almost literally a defense against the dark arts teacher who was much, much more mm -hmm. than they first appear. In fact, that whole theme of Rowling's of don't really trust your first experience with any given person uh, runs through this story. Uh, almost every single character, the Lestrade in this story, uh, definitely the multiple professors that you meet, um, the 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 even the one of the murder victims they all follow that sort of you know you don't you don't really know what's going on here you have to solve the yeah. mystery before you can gain perspective you can't just judge people you can't judge a book by its cover that's just extremely a big part of this story and it's huge huge part of the mm -hmm. harry potter series so uh, there's more, you know, it just kind of, there's just more things that are references the the little dinner scene with, and this, of course it's because it's a English yep. boarding school shot at Oxford and that that's, you know, the Harry Potter stories really are a template of the British boarding school sort of stories. So it's not surprising mm -hmm. they would have those things in common, but it's striking. It starts with the three heroes though. It really does. They, they go on a little adventure against everybody's best advice against everyone's attempts to thwart them and against, um, the better judgment, frankly, of the audience. They go on this adventure in very much the same way that the Harry Potter kids do. And they, the cast of characters that they bump into and meet affect them and affect the plot in the very much the same way. And I thought, I haven't thought that, this whole time. I didn't think it when I was watching mm -hmm. Harry Potter movies. I just recently came to this revelation. Wow. These are a lot alike and they are connected by less than one degree of separation. And that's, yeah. that's feels like it can't be a coincidence. Although the way the timeline is, it has to be really. Right. Right. It's a little strange. Uh, yeah. I mean, what, I mean, you could, you could almost, you know, you could sort of say like may, may did, did Christopher Columbus, did Chris Columbus sort of feel like when, when, you know, when these movies were, when the Harry Potter movies were going to be made, did he sort of feel like, aha, I, I, I know how to do this because I, I wrote something very similar to this relationship before. Like it was, was, was he able to use his experience on young Sherlock Holmes as the, the writer of it to make, you know, maybe that's part of how he sold himself to say i can direct this because i you know may, maybe i don't know maybe um, i don't know but it's it's let it's me call him and ask it's him. interesting that i'll it call him and ask him yeah i'll call chris and i'll say uh say hey can i just ask you a couple of questions i'm yeah. from the world renowned podcast, and while we're at it what's with show. bicentennial man huh explain yourself yeah. yep drop that in hey, there at the uh, end. if i'm you, if you don't uh, conference me in yeah and can you also um apologize for pixels um and uh what's that <laughs> didn't he make a movie called pixels and it was like nine months yeah, i remember yeah, that that's yeah. terrible yeah anyway um all right uh next up sherlock holmes and the pyramid of fear <laughs> <laughs> in several uh countries and in several post-market presentations this film is actually called sherlock holmes and the pyramid of fear <laughs> um, but I, before we get to that, that's great that that's next. Cause that gets us moving along here. I'm taking too much time with this, but, uh, I want to talk about my favorite sequence in the film, which is, which happens before we get introduced to the pyramid of fear. Um, it's this great scene where Dudley challenges Holmes to find the, the school's fencing trophy hides it. Yeah. 
and he gives them a time limit to search for it. And it, it is, mm-hmm. it, it's the moment in the, where the film really becomes what a young Sherlock, it's the only moment really where the mm-hmm. film becomes what a Sherlock Holmes film should be. It's, it's delightful. I mean, it's just so wonderful. It's, it's a montage. So I don't know, but I'm not usually a huge montage guy, but it, it's just wonderful. The music again, really, really helps the music and the sequence is great. The, deductive reasoning that he goes through is fun. The whole Holmes explains how he figured it out at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, the professor's betting on whether he's going to be successful at it. I mean, it's got this, it's this wonderful moment and I adore it. Anthony Higgins plays his fencing instructor. And there's this, and we should talk about the actors here. Nicholas Rowe, who I adore and adore to this day. He's had a wonderful career. And Alan Cox, who's Brian Cox's son, who plays mm-hmm. Watson, who had a growth spurt during this movie, grew almost almost half a foot while <laughs> yeah, they were shooting this see film. It. There are these little moments where you're like, <laughs> wait, what? They do their best to deal with it, but it, you just, a kid uh, is growing yeah. and you, you got him for three mm-hmm. months and there's not much you can do. Um, <laughs> because they they cast a short, sort of slightly overweight kid to play Watson, and what they ended up with this was this linebacker at the end. <laughs> they just had to mm-hmm. kind of deal with it. Um, and Sophie, what's her name? She's still working too. All these actors have Sophie gone on. Ward. Yeah, yep, Sophie, Sophie Ward, who's Ward. lovely in it. Um, those are our heroes. It's important to say that Anthony Higgins was in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he's sort of a it. It's nice to see him. This is one of his more memorable roles, I think. The, I can't remember the name of the other film he did, but the other film he did in 85 is really solid, too. Kate Fleetwood's in it. Our buddy, Freddie Jones. If you ever need somebody to be scared and paranoid and full of bluster, Freddie was the way to go every time. It's great that he's in this. Um, and who's the guy who plays... Uh, Oh, Roger Ashton Griffiths, looking quite skinny compared to how he looks now, plays uh, Lestrade. Lestrade's great in this movie. Very, very clever. He's only uh, he's only Detective Lestrade. He's not Inspector yet. So he's like yes. the, what would you call it? Who's Gary Oldman in the Batman movies? Uh, uh, Commissioner Gordon. He's he's just Officer Gordon. He's very just, much uh, of that. So he's of Detective deal. Gordon. He's Detective Gordon, and and, yeah. and then he becomes commissioner yeah it's it's that kind of Um, thing and it's actually handled really really well in a delightful sort of way very similar film in the goonies you remember in the goonies when rob cohen's when uh jeff cohen's character calls the up the sheriff and says oh being kidnapped or whatever the guy's like "Uh," he starts replaying all the lies that he's told uh at some point in this film sherlock's starting to put stuff together and he goes to lestrade and he's like look this is what i got you got to do something and Lestrade's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, like, what about the time that, you know, you said that the ambassador was going to get kidnapped? And what about the time that, and you can just, there's, it's fun that there's all these history of conspiracies that Sherlock has come up with. I love it. And there's a really yep. terrible section of the film where Dudley uh, frames Sherlock for being che- uh, cheating on a for test. Cheating. And yeah. he actually gets expelled. And you're kind of like, geez. That's heavy for a movie like this. Now these kids are like on their own and they don't even have like, you know, the structure of the whole school thing. They really are cut loose. And as they're investigating these darts and this little bits of physical evidence that they find, um, they all skip the part with the bar and all that stuff, even though there's all kinds of references to other Sherlock Holmes films that are really great. Let's get right to the pyramid of fear. 
there's a giant underground pyramid where a thuggy like cult is creating ver is doing virgin sacrifices to some weird Indian god, and that's what the heart of, of uh, that's what's at the heart of this conspiracy. Now we don't know who all the conspirators are yet, but that reveal that Temple of Doom like sequence and this young girl being murdered. It, at least, to it, Chris Columbus's yeah. credit and to Levinson's, at least that's played for all the horror that it really is. I won't go through the mechanisms by which it happens, but it's horrific. And it, it's, it's, bad. It, yeah. it, it's, it's crazy when you're watching it. But it also, again, it's this huge leap into fantasy storytelling. And I got to say, this it's this sequence, the Pyramid of Fear, where where the critics bailed on this movie. They, they, they just watched Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom and Gremlins, to a lesser degree, but definitely Temple of Doom is credited with creating the PG-13 rating because it's just, some of the violence in it is just off the hook for a PG film. And, yeah. of course, that now all PG-13 movies are just PG movies from that era, and G-rated movies are animated only, so we really didn't change anything by that rating, but... But for a time there in the late 80s, it really was a difference. They really took the opportunity of that extra rating to push boundaries. And this film yeah. is this film wasn't famous enough to cause a controversy, but it definitely pushes boundaries. And this is the sequence where it does it. Um, the Sophie Ward's character, her father plays a mad inventor, car, rather cartoonish scientist character. By this point, yeah, her movie, uncle, uncle, uh, yeah. Yeah, by this point in the movie, he's Rupert dead. T-wax there's a there's yeah. a little Jack Russell Terrier. That's our dog sidekick. It, it the film's packed with all these sorts of conventions and things, and it's packed with Tropes, them. And we're yeah. we're not going to be able to talk about all of them. But one thing that we do have to mention before we get to the point where it's a, a important plot point is that he's created a flying machine, uh, pre Wright Brothers, <laughs> yes. and. Yes. And it's this, it's basically a go-kart where you pedal really hard and these wings flap. And somehow the wings flapping to foot pedaling is supposed to be enough to keep it airborne. Of course, that idea off, yeah. is ludicrous. And the thing, when we see it at the beginning, when we're introduced to this machine, it appropriately crashes into a tree and it's a complete failure. Um... But we're, it's going to appear <laughs> later, right when we need it, of course. So, you know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, what do you call it? Pavlov's it the flying go-kart. Yeah, yeah, it's Chekhov's, Chekhov's, yeah, Chekhov's flying go-kart. Go yep. Sorry, Pavlov's. You introduced <laughs> that, that actually Pavlov's, is not too far from Pavlov's. Well. It's Pavlov's drooling go-kart. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, these kids yeah. show up at this pyramid. They see this sacrifice. Holmes has to interject, even though he's really helpless to do anything. But he gets this crazy group of cultish Indian characters chasing them through this graveyard, of course very creepy and they all get hit with darts and they all have their hallucinations. Sophie, Sophie's is the worst. She dreams of, um, being buried alive by her own father, which is really terrifying. If you're claustrophobic or, and there's this sequence of her falling into this bottomless grave and with her mm -hmm. hands desperately trying to stop from falling yeah. and scraping down the side of the walls. It's very, very, Again, it's very effect heavy, but it, it actually is affecting, which is that's the balance that one, we're yeah. looking for. It. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The worst one, although at, from an animation standpoint, the most impressive 
is uh, Watson getting Watson's. attacked by all the sweets that he's eating that's making him so fat. Watson's portliness is a is a shameful part of the plot of this thing. Yeah. Yep. Watson is he's actually thankfully Cox's character it has his moments where he really does contribute mm-hmm. to it. Solving the mystery and helping the story. He has his moments of heroism, which I appreciate. But he is very much the bumbling, silly sidekick to Holmes in this that that he really isn't in Doyle's works. But is leading to the leading to the line later on. If Mr. Cream Puff, you're just a cream puff. No talking back to me now, Mr. Cream Puff. <laughs> he gets attacked by cream puffs yep. and like a Twinkie yep. and a bunch of different little things in this oh, c- yep. cabinet of of uh cakes and horrors it's hard it's it's i have to see it to really understand what it is no mm-hmm. i'm gonna stop describing it because no amount of me describing it gets to what it is it's it's Correct. astounding but it's kind of terrible you know what, you know what it made me think explain. of hmm. you know what made me think of there that that movie uh better off dead with john cusack the hamburger and he's but the hamburger scene yeah. made yeah, me yeah. think of the hamburger scene it's very similar to that the, yeah, it's also like imagine Halen. Imagine if the let's go out to the lobby guys who are like walking by on the thing, like just mm-hmm. turn and try mm-hmm. to kill you. Correct. That's the sense. That is. You get the sense of this sequence. Um, that is per. That, yep. Anywho. And Holmes is, is actually pretty great and has some hints in canon that something happened there. There's. Uh, we talked about what our favorite Holmes episode or favorite Holmes adaptations was. You'll note this wasn't on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be in there somewhere. It's not terrible Holmes adaptation, but it, it isn't on it because they're they're much better ones. Um, but this film and this moment shares a lot from uh, Nicholas Meyer's novel, The Seven Percent Solution, and therefore the Herb Ross's film. Um, and part of it is this: there's this traumatic childhood event that he's gone through. The film keeps it. And I, I, even if the film's explicit about it, maybe it does come right out and show you what it is. But it, it, whether it does or doesn't, I'm not going to tell you what it is. No, it doesn't. Not, it does. It, it, it really it, doesn't. It, it but, doesn't show you. It doesn't show you, but it tells. It, it sort of. It it and it and it hints at it. It hints pretty pretty uh, directly. You know, kind of unambiguously hints at what it, what it was it, that Holmes. Yeah, that's part of. But, that's part of. Um, that's part of it, these different Holmes adaptations. That's a big part of 7% solution and w- what causes his cocaine addiction in that particular film. Um, and it's hinted at in our favorite Holmes adaptation, which was uh, a fantastic movie called murder by decree by Bar- buddy, Bob Clark. Um, but anyway, those aside, it, this sequence is interesting, but it, the food ruins it. I, I don't know how to explain it, but that's just too silly. It's stupid and silly, and it was never going to be horrific. It was only going to be silly, and mm-hmm. it, that sort of takes the sequence down a peg. But interesting stuff, you know. They get arrested. They have to escape, um, and they have to. They're being chased. Well, first they save Chester Cradwich's life, Freddie Jones, because he. They figure out he's the next in line. Again, I won't go into the mystery, but mm-hmm. that sequence, you are Chester Cradwich. They're trying. These kids helplessly trying to keep this grown man from killing himself via these hallucinations. His particular hallucination is fire, and that's actually pretty effective. Um, yeah. 
That's cool. That sequence. I'm skipping around a little bit, but I don't want to leave out any. Well, yeah. I mean, we find. Yeah, and I mean, that's the Chester Craigwich Craigwich scene is is where we learn what this whole pyramid yeah, Chester, of fear is about. Chester I mean, explains he, it all he, to us essentially. He gets yeah. He gets Johnny exposition and and sort of lets everybody in on it. So again, not a mystery that uh, uh, Holmes needed to solve to really you know it just was like hey this is happening and. It's um, it's not only, you know, yeah it's not worthy of Holmes really but that's that's correct. not a yeah, knock on Columbus Columbus wants to give us whimsy he wants to give us young characters he wants to give us the feel of a Sherlock Holmes adventure in the template of a mid eighties Spielbergian effects heavy film and given that that's the mission statement it it achieves it yeah. it really does get yeah. there so that's cool but it is a weird mishmash of things no doubt. Uh, somewhere along the line, Sophie Ward's dad dies, the inventor, and that's pretty heavy. There's a funeral and mm -hmm. everything. Uh, the film, as you would expect any Holmes film to have, has a voiceover by an old Watson looking back on his the days of his youth. And he says, I've only seen my partner cry on two occasions. And one was when the death of this professor that it meant so much to him. Mm -hmm. Um... I don't think I'm going to expose who the real bad guys are, or we're not going to say what the crime is or what the connections are, even though Joel says it's perfunctory once you get there. Once you have a different character that's not Holmes explain it all to you, it's part of why the hunt for the fencing trophy is so wonderful, because it, he yeah. has to explain it to us, and I think that's that feels very Holmesian to us. Well, yeah, and here's in in here's why uh, I think one of the big failures of the movie is the fact that this uh, this expulsion works. Yeah, the, the expulsion succeeds. Yes, uh, whole, you know, to me that would have been and and actually and and it never pays off because I kept waiting for. Uh, it, you know, I, I I hadn't seen this movie in a very, very long time. So I rewatched it and I kept watching and I kept waiting, going, wait, does he because does he tie it all back in? Does he tie the expulsion back into this plot at all? Wait, why? No. How he do goes, you know? He goes it's off just, to live with has, his brother at the end of the movie. It's it, yeah. And it's it's really, he does get revenge uh, on Dudley. He dyes his hair white. Yeah. But that's yeah, it. He put, that's what yeah. that in the end, in most ways. And this is actually. This might be what's brilliant about young Sherlock Holmes is that there is very, very little justice doled out throughout the film. Sure. Given yeah, what that, has that occurred, actually... there's very little justice. Um, there's the you get the feel of it without with while the film repeatedly like dying Dudley's hair is funny. He comes out with this white hair and he's swearing and he's yeah. all upset, but. Does that make up for a young, promising kid being expelled from school? No. Um, does finally winning the big fencing match at the end of the film and the big finale, does that make up for these girls being murdered or these guys being, you know, tricked into their own deaths? Sherlock mm -hmm. um, sure, Holmes doesn't actually even win the duel. Doesn't he, even actually win the he, duel. He fight, fights to it to a draw basically that's fights how to wins. a draw which is a classic wins, yeah which is a classic fencing mm -hmm. a fencing scene idea that if you don't try and win somehow you won't lose or, uh, yeah. yeah the movie explains it better than i'm going to but uh what did i skip anything before we got to the big well, fencing you skipped duel? you'll skip you skipped you'll believe three dumb kids could fly 
it really it's so stupid joel and yet it's it really it really it's the thing in the movie that really turns me into a 13 year old kid again it it that flying across london with bruce's music just booming through the speakers and 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 they're they're the kid there's nick and all the, the alan all the their reactions to it are so real and the effects are so wonderful the mechanical effects and everything and it's all edited seamlessly together it's this wonderful sequence where they fly across london back to the temple escaping their pursuers and going after the bad guys and the bad guy the fencing duel like down it's very Holmesy, and again down on the docks and you know mm-hmm. in where the water's partly frozen and stuff like it's it's all well choreographed and wonderful um that flying sequence so it's it is stupid but you'll believe you somehow the movie which has taken all kinds of wrong turns up to this point it 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 nails this thing and makes it feel sort of exhilarating and and i think if it didn't we wouldn't be talking about it today truly like i really do think that stupid flying sequence is dumb as it is yep is glorious. <laughs> it's yep. really, really wonderful and magical. Uh, yep. Our job, you know, so Holmes and Watson get, and they, they're, you know, they, they do, they get back to where they, um, they get back to the pyramid of fear where our, our um, where, where Sophie, Sophie's uh, now where the Elizabeth, sacrifice. Yeah. Sophie's about to be sacrificed. So a, and again, she turns a into a damsel. That's kind of too bad. Mm-hmm. She's yep. been more of an equal um, partner up to this point, but whatever. Yep. Uh, and, Better than them and, saving yeah, a stranger, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and, to Columbus's and, credit, he put a female character in the heart of the thing, which, if it were a real home story, would almost certainly would not have. It's got right. a pretty, without spoiling too much, got a pretty bitchin' female villain as well. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and, and I, you know, the one thing that that uh, that Columbus tries to do uh, in 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 the script is to set up why. Sherlock, Sherlock is always alone. Yeah. To, you know, to, why, why does he? That's one of the goals is well, how does this guy become that way? Well, here's an origin story for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For this, because he's very much Sherlock Holmes in this. And yet Nick does play that innocence and that love of life and, the, you know, that excitement for the future. All those things mm-hmm. that a young person should have. He is not a dour, contemplative character we are to experience what makes him so. And the, and it, it, I think that to some degree, it's in a very simple way, but I think that actually works pretty well. So that, that, that works. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we get, um, and then, you know, we get that final duel. We're going to, you know, go, we, we talked about that and then we get what's past is epilogue. Well, that's what you were name. just talking about. That's where I wanted oh, to kind yeah. of talk about what makes, what makes this guy what he is. And it's all sure. done really well. The, again, the old guy who's doing Watson's voiceover is great. I can't remember his name. But he's a pretty famous actor or semi-famous British character actor. Um, Cox, again, Alan Cox is a really, really good actor. He's, 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 I haven't seen him in much compared to the rest of these, but mm-hmm. I liked him in this. And it, the film has this bittersweet ending. It's a brave ending for a movie that is, bending over backwards to be crowd pleasing when maybe it shouldn't yep. be when it does get to landing this idea that this guy goes on to be a isolated, obsessed drug addict while brilliant, a high functioning sort of um, bipolar guy. And that's, I think that's relatable for if you're a guy like me, but it's, it, it's a hard thing to earn with a, 
we've talked about this time and time again. It's not bad that mm-hmm. the movie is trying to get there. It's, it's, you, you know, we've talked about it, which the most obvious, I keep coming back to it because I think it's the most obvious thing. There's a great scene in Thomas Harris's Manhunter where Hannibal Lecter tells uh, Will Graham, you, you're looking for some, you know, incident that created me. And I, what they, what you have to come to grips with is I was always this. There's, mm-hmm. is, you're not going to find some breaking point where I became a psycho. This is, this is who I am. This is what, this is what me being true to my spirit. And it's a horrifying idea that of course that series and every other series I can think of goes on to disprove by trying to create some trauma that some, that creates some character that's dramatically mm-hmm. satisfying. But I think when you really kick back and think about it and you're not supposed to think too much about young Sherlock Holmes, it doesn't quite work actually yep yep and i won't say more than that because that would be to reveal what the ending really is and that we actually i thought we were going to do that joel but we got to the end without really doing it and i think that's kind of cool yeah and i sort of I, yeah now we're it, it does mean that it's going to be difficult to talk about um ah, no i can do it before i can do it okay but before we get there before we get there we have so um so watson um, and, you know, Holmes, now that, uh, you know, so everyone, uh, you know, escapes, we do have this bittersweet, uh, this bittersweet ending. We, um, we, you know, we lo- reflect upon our losses, um, but Watson, uh, we part goodbye ways to Holmes. until we presumably yep. meet back up as adults in the future. Yep. And, and so Watson, you know, says, I knew that this would be, you know, one of many adventures with him. And I thank Holmes for turning me into the man that I am and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so then, you know, fades out. And then we get, we uh, start getting this wintry scene, which is awesome. Um, but, and as that's coming up, we get this, uh, again, the, the great old timey font. Um, yeah, the film, says, technically, the film ends, the story ends on Christmas Day. Yeah. And, and this sometime later in January is what we fade to where it's really snowy yep. and we're out in the country. We're no longer in London and uh, go ahead. Sorry. With your magnifying glass. And, and yeah. So then we get two. this thing that comes up. It says, although Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did not write about the very youthful years of Sherlock Holmes and did establish the initial meeting between Holmes and Dr. Watson as adults, this affectionate speculation about what might have happened has been made with respectful admiration and in tribute to the author and his enduring works. Okay. That's a text that fills up the screen yeah. for like a minute and a half. The, yeah, you know, the, up there a while. And we've already had a disclaimer. So it's kind of funny. And that's not it's even the last on one the- that we... What made me laugh is it's on the screen longer than uh, one of our main characters gets to grieve at the gravesite of a loved one. <laughs> right. That's let's hurry up and get through this with a voiceover. The disclaimer, the second disclaimer of three is just has more screen time than some of the stars in the thing. It's really is absurd. Yeah. But again, he's, tiptoeing very carefully mm-hmm. he really doesn't want to piss off the doyles or any of the fellow sherlock holmes fans which... yeah or fan yeah the and you know the shame is he fans. didn't piss off the doyles i'm sure they took their check and were pretty happy the film is fairly respectful i think of holmes to the degree it can be yeah uh but the sherlock holmes fans i mean they didn't they don't buy into this it wouldn't be on their top 10 lists i promise no no so um 
And uh, yeah, and so we get, you know, so we're in, you know, and all this is going on. And then we get this, then the credits start rolling, but the credits are rolling over this, this lovely wintry scene of this, of this, uh, of this carriage, but the carriage is a yeah, sleigh. It's a, it's a camera you on know? a trolley following the back of a sleigh of a, that's being uh, carried by horses, I believe, not reindeer. Yeah. That would be a little much. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 it's, a, it is a sleigh and there's something very, unique about that right i mean that that's not mm -hmm, a carriage mm -hmm. that's it's weird and again broughton score the credits are cool it's cool to have something to look at but you're looking at something different and why are we looking at something different it's because mm -hmm. there's a post-credit scene and post-credit scenes are as old as movies themselves but if they ones of this style and of this type and the way this one goes is it's a very very in with what modern post-credit scenes are am i right joel it, Correct. It's very much a forerunner of the kinds of things that we experience in movies today. Uh, somebody gets out of the carriage. It is a very familiar face that we've seen before. And mm -hmm. they go to the registry at some country hotel that they've shown up at. And they write down their name, Professor Moriarty. Yeah. And then... Yeah. The film cuts to black and it's the yeah, sequel cuts is to the dude's up. eyes and the guy gives us the little eyebrow. I can't do it. He gives us a little mm, no. gives us a little single eyebrow and it's great. And uh direct and takes then, to the camera are always welcome. Direct yeah, and then uh and then fades out with suggested by the characters created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> Use of some of the characters with the kind permission. Of Dame Jean Conan Doyle. Please don't hate us, Dame Please Jean. don't hate me. Please don't hate this. Please, I beg of you. Please. Young Sherlock Holmes, and that, man. And that's young Sherlock Holmes. Woo! Um, yeah, you know, it it is. It's it's it is it's a love letter. I mean, it's a love letter to to Holmes. Um, but uh yeah, to me, I mean you're you're absolutely right the best sequence in the film is the only holmesian sequence it's where there's a, a great you know, sequence he, where holmes and watson first meet and of course they got to nail that one too where holmes deducts everything there is to know about watson just by looking at him that's fun too right that's very that's very much how it goes when in, mm -hmm. in modern tellings of Holmes stories where they meet he kind of yeah. lets the whole thing fly. And of course he always gets one thing wrong that the character Correct. has to explain to him where the deductive reasoning was solid, but Doyle's always telling us that in and of itself isn't enough. There's gotta be something more because you will, you will get a detail wrong. So a brilliantly right, right he, in, in the Cumberbatch and what's his face. They, he gets the detail. He gets wrong is it's wonderful. And why he gets it wrong. His assumptions yeah. like, this has kind of that as well. And it's very, very cool. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's a running thing throughout the whole thing is he, you know, uh, Holmes asks Watson, you know, uh, you're on a, you're, you're in a room with a North facing window, I think is what it is. And, it's, and a bear walks by what color is the bear. And um, yeah, don't and, ruin the, don't ruin it though. Yeah. And because Watson's and, and wrong just, guesses throughout the film are extremely funny. Right. And, 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 well, here's what I'll say is he gets, eventually he gets it right. And Holmes goes, I mean, and, and yeah, and Holmes goes, why? And he goes, cause I've run out of colors and Holmes, <laughs> you know, sorry. Holmes, Jeff. And Holmes, yeah. And Holmes says, well, an answer without reasoning gets, gets you nowhere. It's also you know, from answer. reading through the trivia this morning. Um, 
which I always do as a cheat when we're going to do a deep dive. Uh, it's they say it's one of the it's one of the very few, if only versions that the Holmes fans can think of where Lestrade actually gets to save the day at one point. <laughs> yeah. Normally he's yeah. a dime short and a dollar later or whatever the phrase is. You know, he just he's there, but he didn't quite make it in time, and our heroes have to yep. suss out for themselves. Um, Lestrade very, uh, very much dismisses him early in the film and then very much comes to the rescue. And of course it gets him promoted to inspector at the end. Um, and the Lestrade character in the film is great. There's just, there's a lot of little details and a lot of little homages to love. It's, it's the melding of Indiana Jones and the temple of doom with Sherlock Holmes. That is a trick. It's a tough one to get over audiences in the day did not critics definitely did not. And it's, it's legacy really is that, Oh, it's just like Temple of Doom. Like, that really was the, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. They solve the murders, but they don't bring a lot of justice. I really do like that about it, though. I really think that's kind of neat. And you find out yeah. they bring even less. By the end of it, you find out they bring even less than you thought, than even the movie was showing you at first. Right. And that's, that's pretty neat. Um, and, all and, right. And so... bittersweet and sad. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to, uh, you know, the end of, of this episode, our, our, our wonderful hodgepodge of stuff. We talk, we went, we did the gamut today. Young Sherlock Holmes, Stephen Sondheim, uh, Game of Thrones, man, we covered it. Yeah. Um, and next week is the final episode is our season finale. It is our holiday uh, extravaganza. And once again, we are bringing in the movie club. The movie club is back. Shauna will be joining us uh, once again for a, for a discussion. We're going to be looking at holiday films, but but no prancer this time. <laughs> We're going to be looking at non-holiday films that at one point or another take place during the holidays is what we're going to be yep. looking at. And, and those and don't three think films, we're going to be talking about... We we're not talk, talking say, about Die Hard. No, we're not talking about thing. You know, we th- that, these are movies that that certainly counts, but that's not what we're going to be talking about. But it's that yeah. idea, and uh, we'll tell you the three movies in case you want to watch them ahead of time and and yep. get on board because I've been criticized for not doing that, especially with movie club episodes. Yeah, um, the films the are going to are... be Age of Adeline, um, about a boy, and The Drop which is the crime oh, drama. Right. If you, the drop's a little vague, but everybody knows about a boy. Um, Age Adeline fairly recently, which is kind of takes place during New Year's, sort of. And those are the three. So watch them and we'll discuss them next week and it'll be fun for everybody. If you got any comments or anything yeah. that you want to hit on. Also, our question next week, we can let that go too. Uh, what's your favorite holiday movie scene in a non-holiday movie? There you I go. Would, I would argue that, frankly, I would argue that It's a Wonderful Life is a non-holiday movie that takes place during the holidays. But, hey, argue that with me if you'd like. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Get get a pocket full of Zuzu's pedals and come at me. Um, all right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, again, every yeah, time you can, a you thuggy cult member uh, shoots somebody with a dart in the streets of London, an angel gets its wings. Here's Here's one thing that isn't talked about with that cult. Hmm. is you know it said that you know it, later because it's like oh you built this cult up uh with uh you know uh, on the homeless and the disenfranchised and blah 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 with, you know whatever but you know what they all had they all had amazing singing voices <laughs> 
they had spectacular voices. Wow. They and, were a demon that, chorus from heaven. Uh, truly. They, they really, really yeah, they uh, nailed it. So, um, all right. Reach out to us at the movie show with Joel and Ryan page on Facebook. Ask uh, at ask Joel and Ryan on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and uh, the movie show uh, with Joel and Ryan page here on YouTube. If you are watching the video feed, leave a comment below, click that subscribe button. Uh, and all that fun stuff. And uh, of course, yeah, you know what I haven't mentioned you should do if you haven't in a long time, uh, you should uh, um, subscribe and rate us on um, on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you're listening. Um, Please, so, for the uh, love of be, all things good in the world, do that for us. That, really that would be it. that would be uh, something you could do. Um, and uh, and that is going to do it for this week. We uh, look forward to seeing you next week for the holidays. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Movie Show with Joel and Ryan. Remember, all views and opinions represented in this podcast are personal and belong solely to the speaker and do not represent those people, institutions, or organizations that the speaker may or may not be associated with, unless explicitly stated. None of these views and opinions were intended to malign or deceive. And now, here's the producers, circa 1982, to play us out. No, I forgot, so I'm going to say it right now. I forgot to say that Nicholas Rowe has a cameo in Mr. Holmes where he plays Sherlock Holmes in a movie that the actual Sherlock Holmes is watching about himself where he is investigating uh, deaths by poisoning that cause hallucinations. How cool is that? Yep. And, of course, that movie was written by Jeffrey Hatcher. from yeah, Not exactly friend of the show, but... All around yeah, good guy yeah. and awesome writer. Oh yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah.